Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. Let's pray before we start. Jesus, we ask that your presence and your spirit would be in all of us and in this space this morning. And I pray that the words of the songs, the words of the scriptures and the sermon would all direct our focus and our love and our attention to you this morning and that we would be encouraged and challenged in our faith um, and that this space would be a beautiful counterculture of um, relationships that are trusting and dependent on each other and um, encouraging each other to follow you and follow the way of Jesus. And so I pray this morning is just a step in that direction. Amen. Let's sing The Lion and the Lamb.
Awesome. Our call to worship is found in Psalm 114. So I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. The next song we'll sing is, Lord, I Need You, which is a very humbling phrase, a very true phrase, and something that in our our time in society of being very independent and, and individualistic, this is a very countercultural song to sing. So I, I encourage you and bless you in singing it.
with confession, let's sing, Give Us Clean Hands.
So I'll give you a chance to look that up in your Bibles. Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 to 5. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. All right. Please bow with me now as we uh, excuse the little ones for Children's Church. Our God, we thank you so much for Children's Church. We thank you so much for everyone that is going there now to learn something new about you. We thank you also for the teachers and we pray bless them as they look to prepare and pass on your wisdom. Lord, thank you for Children's Church. And I pray also a blessing on our service today. Amen. All right. If you are between the ages of 3 and 11, Children's Church is, oh, in the old youth room, so that way. If you have your bulletins on you, there's a couple things that we uh, want to point out before we go any further. First off, I want to say a hello from Matt Beitler in West End. I managed to make it out there for his ordination so far today, so I've been up for a good long while. Uh, but at the same time, I am excited to see what Matt newly ordained Reverend Matt Beitler has to bring to our community. So make sure to praise uh, God for all of the work that he is going to do through Matt. Uh, also, yeah, you probably saw it when you came in, there are significantly fewer trees along that side. There we go. I am terrible with just directions when I am in this room for whatever reason, but uh, it was a wonderful work day. How many people did we have in the end? 20. We managed to do an awful lot. There's still a couple trees that are left. Uh, so don't worry if you didn't get your uh, firewood yet. There will still be more coming either later in the fall or in the spring. But I want to say a thank you to God that there wasn't any accidents or anything like that. And also that we had that wonderful time coming together, uh, working to just working as fellow believers. It was a wonderful day. I know that Dawson has something to say for YFC. All right. Uh, yeah, this is just a friendly reminder that the YFC banquet is coming up. It's getting closer and closer. Uh, it's November 12th, so check your calendar, see if that works for your schedule. It's just a pickup meal from the Austin Hall. Um, you need to get in contact with me if you want to be a part of that and do that by November 1st. Um, yeah. And if you're wondering what kind of food is going to be there, uh, Nacho Mama's is going to be putting on the meal. It's going to be a stuffed chicken breast wrapped in bacon and loaded mashed potatoes, a cauliflower and broccoli salad, glazed baby carrots, and some dessert from CNH Bakery at no cost to you, covered by our sponsors. So sounds pretty good. Let me know if you want to be a part of that. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, beyond that, the uh, EDAM community development modules that were supposed to be offered this coming uh, Saturday. Those have now been postponed for uh, scheduling reasons. If that is something that interests you still, uh, come talk to me. We are looking to uh, pick a day when it will work better for everybody. And so if I know that you are interested, I will put you down on uh, the list of people to contact when we're trying to come up with that new day. Uh, ladies Bible study this Monday at 1.20 p.m. Youth at Dawson and Bethany's uh, this week uh, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Prayer meeting at the church at 7 p.m. Uh, and also this Friday, that is October 29th, yes it is, uh, is the drive through ham and pierogi supper for Paul and Naomi Zacharias at the Austin Hall. To pre-order, uh, the number is there. All right, so those things said, there are also a couple items that we want to pray for this morning. The first is, of course, uh, to pray and continue to pray for Matt Beitler. Uh, the second half of his ordination is coming up in about 10 minutes. Uh, I got to sit through the mock run, but there's another one that's coming where they sign things and all of that. Uh, but also his ministry going into the future. Uh, also, the music and worship meeting is on Tuesday. We could appreciate all of your prayers for wisdom as we look to see what is coming both in Advent as well as the thing that we're looking at planning actually reaches all the way into Pentecost. And so we are quite excited for what is to come, but there is a decent amount of preparing that needs to go on before we can get there as well. Also, please continue to pray for Paul and Naomi Zacharias. They have uh, the fundraiser coming up this week, but also uh, Paul had his heart surgery and is continuing to recover. Please pray for them. And also just our church and the community in general. I'll actually add one more thing. Uh, the family of Bill Dirksen, as well as his wife Eva, after his tragic passing this week, he, that will leave quite a hole in the community. And also pray for the MCC, where he did such wonderful work for all of these years. And so, with all of those things said, let's go now into a time of prayer. Our God, we thank you so much, first of all, for all of the ways that we see you work in our town. We thank you for all of the ways that you see, we see you work in our church and we thank you for all of the ways that we see you work in our own lives as well. They are too numerable to count, but at the same time, they change us down to the core of who we are. All too often, we seem to just let them pass us by, but Lord, this morning we say thank you. We say thank you for our community. We say thank you for the different churches that are in it that are all trying to build your kingdom in their own way. Lord, we pray that as the weeks and the months and the years go by, you will bring all of the churches together. You will help us to build your kingdom in a concerted way. We think of Matt this morning. We want to thank you so much that he has taken this step of ordination. Lord, we pray, bless his ministry. Lord, we pray, bless him and Beth as they serve not only West End, but also your kingdom here in McGregor. And bless him for the rest of his life as well. 
And Lord, we want to say thank you for the work day that we had yesterday. We want to say thank you for the wonderful coming together of everybody that was there and the safety that we had, as well as the good memories that are created. Lord, we want to say thank you for everything that we managed to get done, as well as everything that we can do at a different day to finish off getting the rest of those trees down. Lord, there's nothing like working together to see a different side of how you are moving, and so we say thank you for that. And Lord, we want to also say thank you for music and worship. We want to say thank you for the wonderful work they do putting together so much of the Sunday service week after week. We want to say thank you for the people that are serving on that board. We want to say thank you for the wonderful insights that they all bring. And God, we pray as the meeting comes this coming Tuesday that you will be there front and center. We pray that as the meeting comes this coming Tuesday, your wisdom will be on all of us so that we will know exactly how it is that we are to lead in our way into the future. God, this we bring before you. And God, we want to bring Paul and Naomi before you once again. Lord, their fundraiser is coming up this coming Friday. Lord, we pray that it will be a successful one. God, we pray that you will continue to be with Paul as he continues to recover. Lord, we pray that it will be speedy. We pray that you will heal him up right as rain. And God, we also bring the family of Bill Dirksen before you this morning. His passing hits us hard. And so we pray, be with Eva. We pray, be with the family. Lord, we pray, be with MCC, who you served for so long, and where so many of us can remember off the top of our heads having a conversation this way or that. Lord, we pray, be with their family. Help them to keep you as their rock during this time. Lord, all of these things we bring before you this morning. But most of all, Lord, we just pray thank you for all of the many ways that we see you move. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Today, we are carrying on with the series that we started two weeks ago on how to read the Old Testament. Uh, by exploring the central question that the Old Testament tries to answer, and that is, who is Israel? And we began two weeks ago by starting at the beginning of it uh, with first creation, then going on to Abraham, who entered into a covenant with the Lord, up until Jacob, who was given the new name Israel, a name which means the one who wrestles with God. These are some of the things that it means to be Israel. It means that you are in a covenant with the Lord. It means that you are someone that wrestles with the Lord in your life. And through our relationship with Jesus Christ, this is just as true for Abraham and for Israel and the Israelites as it is for us today as we join in this wonderful lineage through our relationship with Jesus Christ. This week, we continue on in our exploration of the Old Testament by looking at a much bigger 
chunk of scripture. That is from where we left off last week, where Jacob got his new name, to right near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, what is called the Pentateuch or the Torah. It is the most important chunk of scripture that the Old Testament holds. And you're going to see why in just a bit. But from where we left off last week, following Jacob getting his new name. After many long years, Jacob comes face to face with his brother Esau. And far from being killed, as we reading this account all of these years later would have absolutely expected was going to happen when those two brothers met up, instead, they make amends. To which we learn that the descendants of Esau in time become known as the Moabites, the people that are going to come up in our story uh, next week and the week after. And Jacob had sons of his own. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. And yes, I most certainly did practice saying it that fast. Of these men, Joseph is particularly the important one, as he, as we read in Genesis 37, was his father's favorite, which put him in a bad standing with the rest of his brothers. This was both due to good old-fashioned family jealousy, uh, but also because, as we mentioned last time that we looked at the Old Testament, to be the one that received your father's blessing at the end of his life means that you were the one in charge of what it is that your father had when he died. And while normally that blessing always passed to the eldest son, which would have been Reuben in this case, Jacob kind of already broke that mold stealing the blessing his father meant to give to Esau for himself. That was what put the two brothers at such terrible odds in the first place. So from brother's perspective, who knows what their father was thinking of doing, who he was thinking of blessing, who he was thinking of putting in charge when he died. To make matters worse, Joseph had a different mother than most of the other siblings. So what would it mean for both their mother as well as them if Joseph was the one to receive their father's blessing instead of one of them? No one quite wanted to find the answer to that out. And so they quite calmly and rationally did the only thing they could think of doing and they punted him down a well. And then, when traders chanced to pass by, they sold him into slavery. Now, you can't really fully understand the world of the Bible, New or Old Testament, without learning something about slavery. For slavery was a common practice throughout all of the ancient world, especially in Egypt where a solid amount of the wealth that they made in Egypt came from slave-intensive work, like mining copper and gold. The death rate among slaves was astronomically high, and the abuse of slaves in all senses of the word abuse was rampant as well. Slaves were not seen as people. And there was always a lot of need for more slaves at the marketplace, which in turn meant that it was easy to become a slave in those days. The most common way would have been to find yourself on the losing side of a battle or just the wrong side of someone who had an army in general. For most of history, and ancient history, Egypt had one of the largest militaries in the world. They also had one of the largest slave forces in the world, and that is not a coincidence. 
But the other way you could become a slave was that you either sold yourself or someone that you were related to into slavery, usually to cover a debt. And this was always considered a last-ditch option because it was truly a disgraceful thing to do. So by selling Joseph into chains in this story, the siblings are really showing to the extent that they really hate their brother. They are dishonoring not only him, but themselves by doing this. But Cain killed Abel, Jacob wronged Esau, and now the brothers dishonor themselves due to their hatred of their brother Joseph. In the Old Testament, things tend to come up again and again. And you're going to see that over the weeks to come. That is something that is certainly happening now. And so as Joseph headed in chains towards this strange land, he would have done so assuming the entire way that he was a goner. But what actually happened was, as we know, far from that. For somehow Joseph, instead of dying, rose through the ranks. He rose out of slavery and then on to become second to the Pharaoh himself. And then one day, through providence, he reunites with his family. And it is revealed that what had happened to Joseph was God at work all along. Hard at work in the family that he made a covenant with all those years ago with Abraham. And the brothers come to terms with one another. And once again, the family of Israel is whole. And so the entire clan moves down to Egypt. And Joseph has two sons to which in the closing paragraphs of Genesis, we learn that nearing his death, Jacob chooses to bless not just one of his sons, but all 10 of the brothers of Joseph, as well as Joseph's two sons. To which in time, these blessed children go on to become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel that we heard mentioned in our scripture reading today and that are going to be particularly important next week. And then as we close Genesis and open to Exodus 1, we read that time went by. And the 12 tribes, all of which are under the same covenant with God, all of which are descendants and named for the one who wrestled with the Lord and were blessed by him in turn. We read that they prospered in this new land. Prospered to the point that the Pharaoh of Egypt himself grew anxious that these non-Egyptians were becoming too powerful for his kingdom to manage. Egypt was a land where the Pharaoh and his court had near complete power and nearly all the wealth, while everyone else, all the other Egyptians and everyone else that lived in the land had very little. So for the Hebrew people to be blessed with so much would have painted a target on their backs that would be very hard to miss. This is a story that will sound particularly familiar to us those of us who are Mennonites that remember our grandparents telling stories of when we came away from Crimea. And so we can expect that to begin, there would have been cold where there once was friendship between the Israelites and the Pharaoh and his court. And then after the cold, it would have given away to complete hostility. And as the fallout continued, 
any amount of belonging the Israelites once would have felt, it would have melted away until they truly understood themselves to be only strangers in a strange land. For Egypt could never have been the final home of the Israelites because there was simply a lot of tension in the beliefs between these two people. We know from surviving sources that the Egyptians were periodically observant polytheists, that means they had many gods, that were absolutely obsessed with death, like to a weird extent. While we think of our faith as something that is worth spending as much of our time as possible on, the Egyptians, they mostly just observe the religious festivals of the year. Something that is not actually all that uncommon in societies that have a lot of gods. Because if you have a lot of gods, you pick one or two of them to focus on in your household. But for the most part, the rest of the pantheon, to observe them, the religious holidays, they serve you just fine. Because, well, if you actually tried to focus on all of the Egyptian deities, well, then you'd never get anything done. Because there is somewhere in the ballpark of, does anyone want to guess? It's about 2,000 of them. But that wasn't to say that you didn't spend a lot of time working for the gods all the same if you were Egyptian. After all, the Pharaoh claimed godhood himself. And as an Egyptian during farming downtime, you actually were impressed into working in the Pharaoh's grand projects for a couple weeks every year. Would you have been happy about that arrangement? You were not paid for doing that. You probably were given food, but that was about it. Well, a lot of Egyptians at that time certainly weren't. But they believed that it was a god who was commanding them to do that work. A god who, again, happened to command the biggest military in the world. So it's not like they had much of a say on it one way or the other. But, as I also mentioned, the Egyptians were absolutely obsessed with death. And this was something that also would not have sat right with the Israelites. This is why the tombs of the Egyptians that we've uncovered are so stuffed to the brim with burial goods. They are all to help you in the hereafter to have as good a time as possible. Hence why being mummified was an important thing to do if you could afford it because in the hereafter, if you were mummified, it was thought that not only did you have somewhat of a purified body, you also had one that was going to last a whole lot longer than these squishy ones we all have would. A huge percentage of the yearly income of the Egyptians, and here I'm not just saying individual Egyptians, I'm saying as a people, we're talking into the multiple percentages of their GDP, went towards the dead. These were the people for whom at first the Israelites were friends, and then for whom the relationship became strained, and then finally to which the Israelites became enslaved to. People with which the Israelites could simply at that time never see eye to eye. For where the Egyptians followed many largely disinterested gods, and they themselves were largely disinterested towards the gods, the Israelites held one above all others, who they now called upon in their time of need, a theme that is also going to come up quite a bit over the days, weeks to come. 
where the Egyptians followed a man who claimed to be a god, the Pharaoh, the Israelites followed God and whoever God put to lead them. And where the Egyptians focused strongly on death, the Israelites, as we heard from their origin stories last time, held that life itself was worth something because life was made by God. The Israelites and the Egyptians were as separate a people as you could find, which I suspect made their enslavement a lot harder, for it is always easier to treat those who you are different than as less than human is meant to be, which sadly can be seen as the story continues. For it is into the temptation, into this tension, that the most important character of the Old Testament is born. Well, the most important character of the Old Testament saved God. Moses, born to the tribe of Levi, a tidbit that, again, next week. We read that the Pharaoh had recently ordered a call of all of the male Israelite babies. We read that right at the beginning of Exodus, in Exodus 2. And we can assume that he did this in order to keep what he thought of as his herds in check. To which Moses' mother placed her new baby in a basket and floated him down the Nile, where by chance he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and taken into the court. And Moses grew up as one of the Egyptian court. And that would have been the best of possible ways you could have grown up at that time. And not just as an Egyptian, but as an ancient person in general. Again, Egypt was a rich and a powerful country, and almost all of Egypt's wealth was in the hands of Pharaoh and his court. There was no better place for a young boy to grow up than as a member of that court. But one day, while Moses was out and about, we read that he was struck with the injustice of what was happening to the Israelites to which he threw away his power and privilege by killing a slave master and running off into the wilderness where he lived for years. There he marries a non-Israelite, another theme that is going to come up over the weeks to come, and then he lives for many years as a herdsman. Then, one day much later, God in the form of a burning bush confronts Moses convincing him to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out of bondage. He is at first scared to do this, so God also sends his brother Aaron to help. Exodus 3. So the brothers approach mighty Pharaoh with this demand. Let God's people go. And to this we read that Pharaoh refuses because of course he refuses. For as we have seen in the eyes of the people at that time, Israelites very much included, Pharaoh was a literal God. And before him, the ones demanding this monumental thing, who were they? They were a murderous traitor and a slave, both claiming to speak on behalf of a single God who didn't seem like much in the eyes of mighty Pharaoh either, for this God was the God of an enslaved people. In Pharaoh's mind, he held every card. Let's also not forget that giant army that he has. So why 
on earth would he ever let the Hebrew people go? Well, 10 plagues later, he learned why you listen to the God of the Israelites when he asks you to do something. The last plague was particularly hard to swallow. Every firstborn Egyptian son in the country died in one night, just as Pharaoh long before had taken the lives of every firstborn Israelite's son. The Israelite sons, this time saved by smearing the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their door. That night is called Passover, and it is remembered to this very day. It plays a very significant role in the story of Jesus. Now, actually, the Gospels will make a lot more sense when you read near the end. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, both the Israelites as well as God at times do things that make our skin crawl today. They are horrific things, like this. While it can, to some extent, be waved away by saying that it was a different time, something that is true, the brutal sadly often only understand in kind, and the truly oppressed often need someone else to wield the hammer of vengeance that they themselves can't. But never forget that as Christians, we have a duty to wrestle with our scriptures and learn from that process of wrestling with them. There aren't always easy answers to be found as to why certain things happen the way that they do. But these stories do also have theological points along with them. Here, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. A verse Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy 32. I once met a man who was from a country where he was very much so oppressed by the government. And he said that one of the things that was most important for him to know is that God would have vengeance in the end. That's a horrific thing for us to think of, but to him, it was the only thing that kept him from doing terrible things to the people that hurt him and his family so much. But to this final vengeful plague, Pharaoh sent the Israelites away. But as they headed out of the foreign land of Egypt, Pharaoh had one last change of heart. And we read that he rode to recapture the Israelites with the unparalleled might of his army that had caused so much pain to so many people, only for the forces to be caught by an act of God, first parting and then closing the Red Sea on top of them. And so Moses, Aaron, and his people, God at their head, walked free. Exodus 15. And then the Israelites wandered and they wondered until they began to think that maybe God had saved them from the Egyptians only to lead them to a worse death still in the wilderness. To which our Lord, we read, came to Moses atop a mountain, another thing that'll be an ongoing theme. And he came to him with a great gift, the law, which fills most of the remaining books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. Most of the Torah is filled with the law, hence why it is the most important part of the Old Testament. 
The law of Moses is many things, and an in-depth reading of it is well out of the scope of what we are going to be trying to do here. But we don't need to read too much of it to know that the law is really bound up in the history that birthed it, to the point that if you actually tried to live it out today completely unchanged, you would find yourself in prison, and rightfully so. What is life-affirming in one era is judgmental and truly hateful and homo and transphobic in a way that we can all agree is not okay today. What is freeing in one era is patriarchal and anti-woman and oppressive in the next, again, to the point that we can all agree that some of the things the law says are not okay. That isn't a sign that there was never any value to the law, but it is saying that we need to read it for what it would have said to the people it originally was written for first. Taking from it those truths and themes before we try to figure out what it is saying to us today. And to roughly sum up the law as it would have been understood to the people at that time, well, it was instructions for how to live in the world. It was instructions of what is right and wrong. It was instructions for how to get along with your neighbor. It was instructions for how a community should function. It was instructions for how to live without sin. It was instructions for how to bring outsiders into the fold. It was instructions for how to treat people as human beings, slaves included, in a world that found death the most important thing. It is instructions for how the children of the covenant should set themselves apart from those around them to show that they are God's people. What the law is, is a description of how your life and your community will look at that time if you were following the God who made the covenant with Abraham. Imagine if you were among the Hebrew people in that wilderness. You had just come from a land where the gods were arm's length and wildly oppressive, even to their own people. You had just come from a place where you were seen as less than human for having the audacity to be born to the wrong peoples. You had just come from a place where death was worshipped while the lives of the people were neglected at best. And then you cried out to the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God who Israel had wrestled with, to which that God actually came for you sending leaders like Moses, the Israelite in Pharaoh's court, who gave away the entire world to lead you. And then just when it seems like there was no hope that you would ever be freed during the back and forth of the 10 plagues, this God served the vengeance to the Egyptians 
that the Israelites simply could not. To which finally you and your people were set free. Imagine that is you. What is the law then? What it is, is a moving of your relationship with God to the next level, plain and simple. Because now far from just being some distant deity, God has shown you and your people that he will be with you. And this is how you can reciprocate your relationship with him. It's like, imagine you receive love letters from someone and they mean a lot, but how does it change what they mean to you when you realize that you can respond? That's what the law is. Before God was the God of your people. Now by following the law, you know how to be the people of your God. And that is no small thing. That is how the Hebrew people in the wilderness read the law. Not as chains that bound and restricted, not as hate or oppression, but as blessed instructions for how at that time, in that place, you could live out your relationship with God. Far from a curse, originally it was a blessing. And then, once the law was done and written down, not long after, Moses passes on. But not before he, like Israel, who like Isaac, who like Abraham, gave a blessing to his people. The passage that was read today. You will be a great people, a people of our God. So from our story so far, who is Israel? Israel are those people in a covenant relationship with God. That we knew last week. Israel are those who struggle with our Lord. That we also know from last week. But just as importantly, Israel are people of the law. That is, those for whom there is a two-way relationship between themselves and God. Israel are a people who know God will be there with him for all time. And they are also a people who know that they need to live in response to that. This is who Israel is. And as Christians who follow Jesus Christ, this is who we are as well. For as we know, our Lord in his birth, his life and his death and the resurrection fulfilled the law. Matthew 5. And in doing so, showed both how important the law is, because if it wasn't important, then what he did wouldn't actually be an amazing gift. If the law isn't important, that Jesus fulfilled it means nothing. So the fact that it is and as important a gift as it is, we should take when we read that Jesus fulfilled the law as a grand and amazing thing. But more importantly, somehow than that, we also know that now to follow the law, as we as the Israelites are commanded to do, all we have to do 
is follow Christ. All we have to do is accept and believe that Christ is who God says he is. God's own son. Then ask him to take away the sins in our life that weigh us down. And then by building a relationship with him, by reading his word and coming to church through prayer and living as our Lord leads. By doing this, we are following the law of Moses given to us by the God who we have seen time and time again and will see time and time again over the weeks to come saves his people loves his people, and will be there with his people forever. Who is Israel? We are the peoples of the law. We are the peoples who through Christ are in a relationship with God that goes both ways. So I say that we work to build our relationship with our God to show that we get this. Amen. Sing a final song together. They'll know we are Christians by our love, which I sometimes feel a little sheepish singing this song because I know that it's not always, we don't always do a very good job of this, but that is why we need Jesus at work in us and the Spirit to to do what is seemingly impossible sometimes. So even if it doesn't feel like this song is being um, lived out all the time, let this be our hope and our prayer.
Once again, I'd encourage you to read along in the Old Testament with us. Next week, we're somehow trying to get from the end of Deuteronomy all the way to Kings. There's going to be a lot in that one. And so I encourage you, read up until that point. That's a very fascinating chunk of scripture. All right, for our benediction, we turn to the book of Hebrews. I pray that the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood that sealed an internal covenant may prepare you to do his will in every kind of good action, affecting in us all whatever is acceptable to himself through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go now and serve our Lord.